I am Dima Ballin, and this is The Rear Window. Madame Blank. Yes? Susie Banyan, our new student. Something terrible, truly horrible has happened. One of our students, Pat Hingle, who was expelled just yesterday for improper conduct, was murdered last night by some madman. It's a frightening story. This disgusting dog has bitten Albert. He took a piece out of Albert's arm. What? Did you all hear that? That miserable dog tried to mutilate a child. My God. First Pat gets murdered by a madman, and now Daniel is killed by his dog. Yeah, maybe there's a hex on the place. Yeah. Let's call in the exorcist and have it purged. I only caught two words distinctly. Secret and irises. I don't know what they mean, but I thought they might be important. She had discovered that the TAM Academy was founded in 1895 by a certain Helena Marcos, a Greek immigrant, and that the local people believed her to be a witch. Who is it? Who's there? <laughs> I've been expecting you. The American guy. I knew you'd come. You want to kill me? You want to kill Helena Marcos? <laughs> Okay, welcome to the inaugural episode of The Rear Window. This is our new podcast, and I'm sitting here with David Clyler and JP. Why The Rear Window? Because back in the day, when I was 15 years old, I used to project for David Clyler, my film teacher. He used to run a portable film showcase with The Rear Window, and we used to lug these big 16-millimeter projectors. Uh, to uh, various venues, and uh, I, I still remember that. It, was, uh, it served as my film education, as well as my sex education, because the programming was as transgressive as it was voyeuristic. So, welcome, David. Well, um, I'm glad to see I was a mentor to your sex education. Yes. It's good to know, Dima. And welcome, JP. Yeah, pleased to be here. And we are talking about Suspiria, Dario Argento's original Suspiria, which personally reminds me of, as I was doing the research on this, I kept being reminded of Berlioz's Symphony Fantastique, oddly enough, which is not as far of a reach as it sounds, and I'm going to elaborate on that just a little later. It's a film about a young girl, played by Jessica Harper, who rolls in a ballet school, which turns out to be a front for a covenant of witches. And I have to say up front, I have never been a big fan of Suspiria personally, so I'm here to learn as much as I am to talk. Uh, uh, actually, can we make a counter? Because unlike you, first time I saw Suspiria, I loved it. David? I loved it too, because it is such an abate bare bones, simple story young innocent goes abroad to an old dark house and bad things happen. And this is one of the most elaborate and scary variations on a very standard theme that I've ever seen. And what astounded me was the complete innovation of the film. In fact, that I still got goddamn scared while watching the film. <laughs> so anyway, so, so we're coming from different points of view from this, so, which is good. So, so we should have an interesting discussion. Well, why is Suspiria a great film? Tell me. Well, I think, I think first one has to look at Dario Argento. And in many ways, had it made, been made by somebody else, it might not be as famous and long-lived as it has been. So in a way, it's important that it's a Dario Argento horror film. And he, prior to this, was basically a giallo filmmaker. Would right. you explain what giallo is for those of us who don't know it? Giallo is a, a, a form of essentially slasher movies that, that were developed in Italy. So they're slasher and always involving a sharp knife, a masked person who wears black gloves. The now, reason why it was called giallo, which means yellow, is that it came from a whole, a whole sort of line of pulp, mag, uh, pulp novels that always had yellow covers. So therefore, the name. Yeah, and the interesting thing about these was that they were mostly Italian translations of English language stories by either Agatha Christie or um, Mike uh, Hammer. No, 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 no. Um, uh, 
the the King Kong. Um, Edgar Wallace. Edgar oh, Wallace. Oh, Edgar Wallace. Yes. Oh, yeah. Edgar Wallace, yeah. Boy, he's talking about a man who produced a lot of... <laughs> I know. <laughs> Films of Edgar Wallace are amazing, endless. But I've heard... I've only seen a couple of the Argento films before this, and so I'm not necessarily an Argento um, expert the way you guys might be. But I'm not. Suspiria, from what I understand, is a step forward and a step a little bit differently for what uh, preceded with Argento. Yes. And maybe, and then in terms of being an American consumer at the time Suspiria came out, I've seen the story a gazillion times before. I've never seen anything quite like it. Mm. Can you, can either of you explain that better than I can? Well, I, I think, I mean, one of the, one for me, and I, I'm probably leaping ahead in our conversation, That's is okay. that um, this, so we're 77. I mean, we are, we're, we're about to go punk. We're about to go disco. We're, we're rock and roll seems to have died down. And the biggest one is that the gothic movie, the gothic horror, um, was getting very stale. And this is not gothic. That's what I found so interesting is that it's not a gothic tale. It has some elements that you could think of as gothic, but as far elements, as yes. but as far as color and texture and style, it's actually maybe more baroque, which will come up uh, operatic in a way. Um, that it comes out more out of a psychedelic, post psychedelic view for me. It also has elements visually of giallo. That I think you know, because I, I really I do like the knife, knife slash the tracking, yes. the following people. Um, those elements are definitely here as well. And and in fact, because I would I actually like a lot of the you know Argento giallos like uh, Deep Red and Crystal Plumage and stuff like that. My problem with Suspiria is not um, it's more of a personal problem. It's not really criticism of Suspiria. If you accept a fairy tale as being a story where the monster or the creature or the witch is an ordinary character in an in, in extraordinary world, as opposed to a horror movie where the monster is an extraordinary character in an ordinary world, Cocteau takes the very opposite approach to the fairy tale than does Argento. He films Beauty and the Beast in a very realistic, almost documentary style. His magic, the extra, the extraordinary world, comes from his set pieces, you know, from the arms coming out of the walls, the statues that come to life. and from, Which are not realism, though. Which are not yeah, realism, sure. but his style of photography is realistic. Ah, but I think, I think what you're, you may mm. be trapping yourself into the fact that when Cocteau made his film, he did not have CGI. He nope. did not have any of the effects that could have been used, nor the money to to afford them. And actually, in the in the uh, logic of the film, when you get to the realistic ending and the guy's no longer the the beast, I mean, good God, where's my beast? One would say it was much better, much more better in the romanticized fairy tale aspect of the thing than when he comes to life. I mean, that's maybe an unintentional irony, but it's a lot of the way people do see the film. It was the film was so much better. Before everything became real and he was no longer the beast. I mean, uh, and, and I, I think and that's I, intentional, actually. I think that's maybe intentional. Right. Well, no, because because he actually he was not actually trying to make a fairy tale. He was actually playing with a statement about what the world was like after a world war uh, and how the world had know. changed. I think I, I think that may be more true of Orpheus than Beauty and the Beast. But in his diary, he actually he wrote that he gave his uh, cinematographer Henry uh, Ellicon specific instructions to not stylize the photography. He wanted a very plain, you know... Fairy tale. ...visual scheme, mm -hmm. because to him, when the characters react in a matter-of-fact sort of way to the magic, it's all the more magical. Mm -hmm. that's, that's Right. Now, Argento, of course, does the opposite here. He creates a very artificial world right from the start. And... That's not a criticism of Argento. I'm just saying that I personally find it harder to relate to that than I do to what Cocteau did. Oh, okay. You see what I'm saying? A matter of taste. Well, it's a matter of taste. Well, yeah. maybe a matter of taste. But, it, you know, once again, going back to fairy tales, I mean, you do, you do have different kinds of fairy tales. And in a way, um, with Cocteau, had, had he used a lot of fancy 
tricky camera work, it would have been more of a horror story. But he shot it, even though it's not a, a film for children, he shot it in a style that would be the way that you would shoot for children. As opposed to playing with aspects of cinema to heighten it unrealistically, i.e. horrorish. Now, okay, yeah. But once again, you can make a fairy tale that has all that stylish aspect. And it depends on what kind of, you know, because there are very, you know, very simply, Beauty and the Beast is not a folklore fairy tale. It was written by a romance novelist. Mm -hmm. So it, it actually has an origin. It has no folk background or anything like that. It was an invented tale by a modern writer in 1740 or whatever. Mm -hmm. But as opposed to folklore, I mean, the ogre under the bridge mixes, is that, is that the real world or a fictional world? The, the creepy forest with the witch in it, is that realism or is that the fantasy world? You know, this, this question that you're asking about, what world is it? And in, and in many ways, with this film, we start out in a very real world. We're in an airport, right? For two seconds. And then yeah. we step out in the rain, we get into a taxi, and the taxi drives up to, oh my God, now we're in an unreal world. Very so real. she actually leaves the real world and enters this distorted world that she walks I, into. He doesn't give us enough of the real world. Well, that's, I think that's part of the strength of Suspiria. I even would say it comes a little bit earlier because, wait a minute, where's the crowd control? There's nobody in the airport. There's something really creepy even about the airport in the first two frames of the film. Then we had this unreal uh, uh, thunderstorm. There's no traffic outside the airport. What airport, even in 1977, had no traffic outside of it. And then, wait a minute, we're into a world that's already not quite what one would... I mean, I know every time I've seen Suspiria, wait a minute, this, you know, what's, what's going on here? And now why it's going on that way, I don't know. But the deserted airport, no traffic, and see you know, the cab coming up, the you know, incredible rainstorm, which is you know, out of control, uh, where we plunge pretty quickly into an unreal world. And there, I don't think there's any attempt on Argento's part to be able to frame what happens to her in the context of, a, of an established real world. Well, which does, it he brings, does have a narrator. I mean, we do open yeah. with Susie Banyan decided to perfect her right. ballet studies. Susie Banyan decided to perfect her ballet studies in the most famous school of dance in Europe. She chose the celebrated Academy of Fribourg. One day at nine in the morning, she left Kennedy Airport, New York, and arrived in Germany at 10.40 p.m. local time. Yes, it is short, but we do start in the real world and enter this world that she's entering. Well, what I'm saying is that probably uh, he pulls the rug out from under our feet. If we do think that in the first few seconds of the film, he pulls the rug out from under our feet almost immediately. Right. It's right. not like Alice in Wonderland or The Wizard of Oz. You know? Well, Alice in Wonderland, yes, we see her at the, we see her with her parents and the family, yeah. and then she wanders off and she sees a rabbit. Yep. So we do, even in Alice in Wonderland, we do have that moment, and it's not long, of nor normalcy. No, that's right. I think both Wizard of Oz and Alice in Wonderland do have that. Our general doesn't even give us that. Really. Well, no, he gives us that. It's mm -hmm. short, but it's still there. I mean, Alice leaves the party it's, almost it's, immediately. It's, it's very short, though. I'm wondering if it's even relevant. Um, See, I would go with Demon's thing on that one, yeah. Oh, I, I, think, I think it is absolutely relevant. I think we need to follow on the normal girl into an abnormal situation. See, what I think... It that, it, that if this whole thing started in totally unreal, it would be, yes, absolute. unlike, you know, unlike anything else, you were in the... It's all fiction. That's interesting, because uh, Asia Argento said that she saw this film when she was, I think, six years old? Or, yeah. <laughs> or 11 or something right. like that? Uh, six. Uh, uh, and her reaction was that it, it it reminded her of the typical kind of grim fairy tale, that yeah. that's what she was reminded of. But w when I first saw it, that's not what it reminded me of. But here's my, I mean, this being the question of, when you, sit, when you go to, this is a horror movie, it was advertised as a horror movie, it's called Suspiria, mm -hmm. and you go to it, when you sit down and you start to watch it, you're not thinking fairy tale at all, in any way. No. You're going to see a horror film, and we're... And even though, yes, it's only three, it's only a minute and a half to two minutes in the opening that we're leaving a, a, a real airport, getting into a real taxi in the rain. Yes, and it's a little creepy. And then arriving at this very strange place, it still gives you that stepping out of 
the real world that you walked into the theater from, and then we're slipping into a different world here. So, and as far as, so, so you're not expecting a fairy tale, you're expecting a horror story. And this is not that different from a ghost story where you leave the real world, you go to the Scottish castle, and it starts to get weird, right? But the Scottish castle isn't anywhere near as artificial as this. Correct. Absolutely. And no, yes. we're absolutely stepping this is into not a... Just, this is not just a, a haunted castle. This is like a dream setting. Right. As a matter of fact, that takes me back to my original point as to why this makes me think of Berlioz's Symphonie Fantastique. written only about six years after Beethoven's Ninth, and it is so totally over the top. It's a programmatic symphony, which means that it has a story. It tells the story of this artist who tries to commit suicide by taking an overdose of opium, and instead it plunges him into this kind of hallucinatory nightmare where he sees his unrequited love carried off by witches. The last mm -hmm. movement, in fact, is a witch's Sabbath. <laughs> it was unprecedented in its time for its incredibly colorful orchestration. It's like it's like a trip, very much like Argento's so the Suspiria is a trip. It, it's and one a, of my best friends made a short film, one. truly uh, amazing short film, uh, called Met State, set in an insane asylum. There you go. And uh, the last part of uh, Simply um, Fantastique is the soundtrack. And actually, even though it wasn't an original soundtrack, the... Uh, film got an award, uh, a couple of short film awards for best soundtrack, even or best use of sound. <laughs> My friend Roger Miller did that. Uh, okay. And it's an amazing film, beautifully edited to that, uh, but also question of the sound. I mean, you're right. But the thing is, even my first encounter with uh, Symphony Fantastic, I had no idea about the idea of a narrative and the thing. I just loved the music. Well, and that is also how, uh, how the symphony is similar to Suspiria. The narrative is the least important thing. In, in, well, that's in true, true Suspiria. Mm -hmm. Suspiria. Uh, and also, don't forget, Suspiria is sort of, you know, I don't want to say it's based on, it's inspired by this little essay that was written by Thomas de Quincey, who's famous for Confessions of an English Opium Eater. Like Berlioz, he wrote <laughs> it sort of as part of an opium trip. And while, narratively speaking, Suspiria really has nothing to do with de Quincey's writing, uh, I would argue that Argento captures de Quincey's kind of heightened, colorful style of writing. I mean, he really was a visionary. He really captures the sublime. You very much get the sense that he's uh, dwelling in another world. Oh, he's dwelling in his mind, which, is, which I find which, interesting. De Quincey, obviously... A lot of his work is about how things from the past have totally affected him today. Yes. And, and, and in fact, Suspiria, the whole Suspiria de Profundus is about the death of his sister when he was a child. Two of his sisters. Two of his sisters. Yep. And, and how that has affected the rest of his life. Um, and that, in fact, the whole point yes. of this, the, the point of this was in of the section, Lavana and uh, the three, three, three mothers, ladies of sorrow, three yeah. ladies of sorrow is that Lavana is the Roman goddess of birth. Mm. So the one who helped children into the world mm. and with her came three sorrows. And obviously De Quincey's talking about the fact that he had to deal with the sorrow of losing his, his sisters. Mm. But, and, and, this is probably the most interesting aspect of it, because in that uh, Argento, and probably more, maybe even more his co-writer, uh, took this as, and sort of transformed it into from, from what was not horror to horror. Mm. The, with De Quincey, these three sorrows were actually actors from God to deal with, to help humanity deal with sorrow. Right. The third one is not as nice because the third one is about the idea of suicide, whereas the first two were not. But in many ways, for Argento, was to switch these ladies of sorrow 
over to witches, which is a whole sort of the reverse of the, what De Quincey was talking about. Mm. And in many ways, I keep I always think of Macbeth's three witches, who had who which have had a huge effect on tons and tons of people talking about you know obviously the supernatural and witches. Have you ever heard of Helena Marcus? Oh yes, she was a very famous black queen. A powerful witch with a tremendous talent for doing evil. A real mistress of magic. She lived and died in this city. Did you know that? Yes. And might there exist a guild of witches? The correct term would be a coven of witches. A woman becomes queen if her magic is a hundred times more powerful than the rest of the coven, which is like a serpent. Its strength rests with its leader, that is, with its head. A coven deprived of its leader is like a headless cobra, harmless. Skepticism is the natural reaction of people nowadays, but magic is ever-present. In other words, quandum obique, quandum semper, quandum ad omnibus, creditor est, which means that magic is everywhere and all over the world. It's a recognized fact, always. So the question being, obviously, they have taken elements. One is the young girl coming into this world, I mean, uh, and dealing with sorrow. Of What's her sorrow? Well, one is she's, she's, she's looking to, to be successful. Obviously, she hasn't been. That's a standard trope. No, it is a standard trope. But once again, that's what we're dealing with. I mean, this is not... <laughs> It's not a piece of great literature, Suspiria. It's a wonderful film, but it's not great literature. Yeah, because I think, I mean, for me, it's, it's you see, the reading De Quincey uh, into it, or Berlioz, I mean, yeah, I don't know enough about Argento, whether he it was a head tripper uh, in the 60s, and whether or not this is like, oh my God, this is the kind of stuff I, I hallucinated about when I was, uh, you know, doing drugs. Uh, that is a, 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 you know, a possible thing. Because um, clearly, for... For those people who were carryovers from the 60s and early 70s, this is a head trip film. Mm. It really is. Oh, totally. And, uh, and where it's easier not to think about narrative coherence and just like, wow. Uh, and with all the use of color and especially the, the soundtrack, the music soundtrack. Uh, there is no narrative coherence as such because uh, yeah, that's uh, what I said. The, film, yeah. the film, yeah, the film is a series of vignettes almost. It's a mood, yeah, very much a mood piece that wanders from different things to different. Yeah, things. it's a mood piece. It's like it's like a tone poem. But getting back to what well, a tone poem, or uh, one of the things that you you brought up, Dima, is um, the operatic aspect of it. There's oh, no question about opera, it. Yeah. Uh, uh, there's it is a series of extraordinary set pieces, and one would waste one time thinking about what the overall uh, narrative coherence is is going to be. It, it's a beautiful. I mean, a series of nightmares in some ways uh, yes. that is yes. um, that is they're beautifully staged and taking, you know, a recognizable trope, young, innocent girl going into a strange world. All she wants to do is be a, a, a great dancer. And whoops, what did I what did I what did I end up in here? That's OK. So we don't I don't think we ever I don't know about you guys. I don't know whether we ever get a chance to really care about her fate. That was my or, or actually guess her fate. Yeah. I mean, because here, why why do they bring these girls? Why what are they doing with these girls when they bring them there? They're either converting them to witches for some unknown reason. I don't know if they're sacrificing them, which is another witchy thing to do, according to Christian religion. Um, that yes, the the answer to most of the questions of, of plot and story are not there, and that we know that something horrible sh could happen to her. And we do know that because mm -hmm. something horrible was happening to the girl who ran away at the beginning and that there's this ghostly figure following people. Oh, well, that's a scene with the wires. I just love that. Getting trapped it, in the wires. It's has... a great nightmare scene. It has dream logic, definitely. Yeah, I'd say that's probably um, closer. I'm glad you mentioned opera, by the way, because uh, while opera doesn't feature in Suspiria so much, in Argento's Inferno, which is his sequel to Suspiria, mm -hmm. there's a wonderfully staged murder scene, which is set to um, a chorus from Verdi's Nabucco. 
and he edits it and he stages it in rhythm with the opera, and it's really well done. Not unlike opera, we don't go to opera for a realistic story. Uh, you know, uh, JP was talking. We were talking about this the other day. You know, there's, there's heightened emotionalism that goes on opera, but you go for the set pieces, and you have this heightened emotionalism. You're not really going to go for. You don't go to opera for the story. And uh, well, yeah, well, you know, that's true. But I actually, I was going to say because because your question really was that some critics have have described this as being operatic. Yes, and, and I actually I would sort of disagree with the. Critics, because this is not what opera is. So would I, yeah. And the opera is high melodrama. Yes. And very heightened. It's but, heightened But the other thing that it is, passion, which... Yes. The, the thing which it is, which Suspiria is, is grandiose. The trick about opera is one expects lavish sets, lavish set pieces. Mm -hmm. And this Suspiria absolutely delivers that. That it is the grandness of opera. I mean, the, it it gives you the grandness of opera, but not the emotion or the passion of it. Absolutely, that's, and that's, that's why that's, that's why I would problem. disagree that's with the, the critics who call it opera. Because I find Argento rather cold, personally. I mean, he is excessive in the way opera is excessive, but his excesses are more visceral than emotional. Well, a lot of, I think it comes with the DNA with Italians. Uh, I mean, after <laughs> well, all, I don't know. eight and a half well, is a series yeah. of really great set pieces. There's a lot in in, in Coppola's films. Uh, there's set pieces. Uh, yeah, there's more of a story. Yeah, there's no question about it. But there's no question about it. We think about some of the films made by directors who are Italian or of Italian descent. You think about the scenes. Right. I can't think of any other nationality where, I mean, yeah, they happen every place. But I really can't think of any place else where, oh, you got to see that scene, that kind of thing. And I think, you know, Ponderance of Italian. Uh, no, no, they, they 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 know how to make a scene. I mean, that's why their westerns are so wonderful. Yeah, yeah. they don't all make sense, but they've got they, they know how to make it. This scene work and this scene work and this scene work, uh, which are very and the same thing as the, the the police and the giallo films. You know, they're really good with a the chase. They're really good with a gangster scene. They're really good with a situation where. It gets tense, and you know everything's going to explode. They're yeah. good with those things. Wasn't Argento one of the writers on Once Upon a Time in the West? I mean, give me yeah, a... Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. And, yeah, yes. I mean, there's a... I think it's in the DNA. Uh, but Italian opera is very emotional, actually. And But, but that's very... But once again, I have a feeling you have to really separate these arts, because they don't easily shift into each other the way they do in some other countries. Well, that's why Argento is, is not very operatic. You're right about that. I would say Bava is more operatic because Bava, at least in certain films, deals with real excessive, like extremes of passion. But yeah, and, and I think that's, you know, we were talking the other day that, you know, if you go to any country and you were actually to take one year of films, and I'm talking the United States, that, okay, so, so six or 7,000 feature films have been made of all different, you know, Everything down from somebody who made it for a thousand dollars up to somebody who made it for a hundred million dollars, and there's a lot of really terrible films in that range. And the trick is that in the United States they get buried, whereas in smaller countries, um, the spark of talent is is appreciated more. There are less of their films; they do not make any as many as other countries like the United States. And there becomes a cult following about uh, over those who stand out amongst a small group. So, I mean, if you were to come to America and start talking about horror, horror filmmakers, you would be talking endlessly. Whereas if you go to Italy or France or uh, you're going to, you find far less. Yes. And out of that pack, obviously Argento, is still a low, in many ways to us a low budget filmmaker. I don't know. Obviously, he he got money for these films, but in many ways he was 
uh, without without a lot of you know outside interference making the films that he wanted to make, which I think this comes under your auteur theory. Mm-hmm. He is an auteur. He is an auteur. Although yeah. it's interesting, one, uh, I think the first Argento I saw uh, get my um, it was early seventies, Bird with the Crystal Plumage. Mm-hmm. What was interesting, it did get a pretty major release. It was a film 2C, not for me like Suspiria. It was a little bit slightly under the radar screen. Uh, but it was sort of interesting uh, that the way the film was touted, we have an Italian Hitchcock. Well, I've seen Bird of the Crystal Plumage, and it's a good thriller. And actually, the characters are more are better developed than they are. But what makes them stand out to me is not... It's some nice stylistics in Bird of the Crystal Plumage, and it's a fun thriller. But it didn't jolt me the way Suspiria did. Hmm. It's funny, I showed Suspiria a lot in my rear window days. And uh, Well, actually, that's where I first saw it. I projected it for you. Yeah. In 60 And you still didn't like millimeter. it. You were too busy trying I, to flirt with somebody. That, that was part of my sex education. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, in fact, I, it was one of those films. Um, I have these films I call arm twister films. You got to see this one. I never forget when we had the 16 millimeter print of it. I would have two or three showings of Suspiria during the week I had the 16 millimeter print. you got to come over and watch it on the living room wall. And I do think it's a film because I, I think trying to intellectualize my response, it was that it was different than anything I'd seen in the line of horror films. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it didn't pay much attention to story. It didn't pay much attention to my getting developed emotionally with the characters. But he was doing something there that truly scared me. Yeah, I think it's the stylistics. He's got a, an incredible imagination. And... But his scenes do work at creating terror, hmm. uh, even though we're not invested in an individual character. Susie, wake up. Please, Susie, wake up. The notes are gone. Someone stole them from me. You understand? They disappeared. Don't fall asleep. Please, help me. Wake up. Help me. This is the only thing I got left, and that's because it kept it on me. Look, look. What's the matter with you? Don't you remember what's going on? This is the key that'll get us wherever the teachers go every night. I wrote it out yesterday evening while I was sitting here next to you. Susie, do you know anything about witches? The only thing that's missing for me is tension, though. His terror seems to be just, I don't know, it, it, it's almost pornographic. It's not really... Well, that, that, that has to do with character. Once again, it, I mean, most great horror is that the audience invests their feelings in a character. Mm-hmm. And, and you can do it both sides. I mean, literally, you can either... <laughs> you can be worried that um, Jamie Lee Curtis is going to die... Or you can be worried that Frankenstein's monster might be killed. I mean, you can take both sides. That that you, if you invest an emotional quality, which is why, you know, this is why an audience will yell, "Don't go down in the basement," mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And in many ways, Argento's and some of the other horror films from Europe at the same time were not as were not as worried about that aspect of the audience connection. And in many ways, I see this, and the first time I saw it, yes, it was terrifying. It wasn't as scary as some other films I'd seen, but it was still a scary movie, and I was, you know, I was not a little kid at the time, but I was still, you know, I was still young. But it was much more, it was much less the worried about the character as, why am I watching the movie? It's scary. You know, which is which is a you know a valid way of watching a horror film because there are films where you don't care about the characters, but I don't want to be in the room because it's too scary, or gory or whatever. But I think we were all talking about the fact that on after you've seen it and it scared you, and you go back to it, it you suddenly realize that the other aspect of it, which you which was unique at the time, it's an art film. Question to ask though, um, given you know again just watching it as a consumer, to what extent, apart from the stylistics of Argento, to what extent does the music track really? I mean, can you imagine? I mean, there aren't that many horror films that have as great tracks as this one. I mean, 
I, I love, I'm over at the uh, local uh, art house theater, a uh, repertory theater, the Brattle, about a year ago. Wait a minute, that's the soundtrack to Suspiria. And uh, it's a very simple soundtrack. I think, in many ways, in terms of what John Carpenter did in Halloween, very just a few notes that repeat themselves in various ways. But I know that the, in, in the process of watching it, I love the stylistics of the film, but what created tension in me or apprehension in me was the minute the music came on, oh shit, something's going to happen. And uh, like the guy, you know, the whole the great scene in the, the, the plaza with the blind, the, the, the blind guy with the yes, dog. Yes. And the, music's, uh, the music is doing it to me, and uh, it, was, it was a totality. But I don't know that much about how Argento used music or the musicians. Well, I'm, I'm actually curious too, because obviously this is the band Goblin who produced this. And, and it's funny because they, in many ways, they remind me of something completely different as far as music, um, which is uh, the Ally Orchestra. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, that's okay. In, in, in many ways, um, Goblin seems like a band who is watching a movie and reacting to it, much the way a, a live musician would, in the old days, would do a silent film. And I, and I think they're effective. They, they were right for the day. Um, they were in that sort of odd post-New Age into a, a dance music aspect mm -hmm. of the world that was popular at the time and fit this kind of a film. There's a little bit of metal in the film. I'm not quite sure how, how they were classified, and I really don't know. But I do know whatever combination works for this film, to me it adds to the effect of the film. So as much as we might praise the stylistics of Argento, if not his narrative structure, the individual scenes, I remember the music and the sense of apprehension and dread that I had every time that music, you know, I think just even when, I think, I forget when we first hear the music, but I do know when she's getting the cab and you see the woman wandering through the forest, the music, said, wait a minute, I'm, I'm scared, but I don't know what's going on, but I'm scared, or I'm apprehensive, if not totally scared. And I, I really think it was extremely effective. And again, I wish I knew more about the dynamics between the director and the uh, the musicians in this thing, because um, they, in my mind, deserve, if not equal credit, a lot of credit for making the, the film just so, such an incredible experience to sit through. Well, it's interesting. In the credits, uh, Goblin, the, the, the members of Goblin are listed individually, and Argento is listed as one of the composers. That would make so, sense. I.e. working with... That would make sense, yes. Working it's like directly Carpenter. inside the band. Whereas well, Carpenter, he says, often, yeah, Carpenter the, wrote uh, Halloween. Car, yeah, Carpenter, Car Carpenter was separate in that he was the lone composer, where this one is the director and the band as one unit composing the film. Speaking of that eagle scene, mm -hmm. the scene where the uh, blind man's dog attacks him, mm -hmm. would you say that was inspired by Burn Witch Burn, mm. the Night of the Eagle? In other words, not not really. Because I, I, I think it's more... Um, it has witches, it has a yeah, stone actually, eagle. Except that in, in, well, in, in Bernie, uh, Burn Witch Burn, which is actually called the... The real title is what? Night of the Eagle. Night of the Eagle. Um, that, is a super, that is a supernatural symbol that comes to life and tries to kill someone. Whereas I think in this story, it, it's much more naturalistic, is a dog is uncomfortable about something and attacks someone. But we first see the stone eagle take flight, or at least we see its shadow or... Well, that, that it's, it's yes. implied. Okay. That. So that, that one single moment, yes, probably. And, but, you know, it's a touch. What's happening? So Argento has said that he enjoys watching beautiful women get murdered on screen. Uh, it's much more interesting to him than 
watching an ugly guy or an ugly girl get killed. He likes to see uh, beautiful women get brutally uh, murdered. There's nothing, there's nothing uh, unique about that. No, there's nothing unique sake, about it. You know, going back to the silent films, when some sweet young thing is tied to the, ra- uh, the railroad tracks and the train's coming, and we, you know, we, you know, these yes. are, this is the standard thing. We looked, I mean, I don't know what we want to make of that sociologically. Or Well, well I can I'll make a soci- soci- sociological point, mm. is that Obviously, a lot to do, and this is ignored by most people, a lot to do with why film works is gender. That in many ways, our sexuality and our sexual desires and those biological urges within us are what make a lot of good stories, especially film stories, work. That the choice, in a novel, in a novel, you just invent a character. And you can describe them, but the but the reader is inventing who that who they imagine there. In a film, you have to choose the right actor, the right look, the right feel. That actor has to create the right mood and character for us to care about. Very simply, if I if I sit down and I show a whole batch of unattractive guys get killed, right? There's not a great reaction from an audience. I put a beautiful collie out there and shoot it. What happens? People go screaming from the theater. That is also true with a beautiful woman. It can also be true with a beautiful guy. And again, how many films think of Hitchcock? Damsels in Distress? Uh, Even though at the end it's James Stewart, but you have that whole elaborate set piece in Rear Window where uh, uh, Grace Kelly goes into the place and she may be discovered by Raymond Burr. You've got Psycho, of course. Uh, even even uh, Tippi Hedren's more in danger in The Birds than Rod Taylor is. So you, you, it just gets to be sort of, a um, uh, again, a trope. And, you know, if there's something missing, and I don't mean this negatively about Suspiria, but we don't, even though we have little saucer eye, what's her name, Jessica Harper, but we're never quite made, but she's still good looking. And the woman who gets uh, tangled up in the wires is even better looking. Oh, they're all beautiful. And uh, They're all yeah, beautiful, all of them. But I, you know, again, what does it say in the age of political correctness? Um, uh, yeah, well, that but, was going to be my question, actually. What does one do with that in an age of identity politics? I, I think it's quite simple. In an interview, you don't say that. <laughs> Good point. That, well, that, he that, said that people have walked out of interviews with him because of that, and he doesn't care, hilarious. which is fine. I, I mean, which is great. Well, but that, I mean, that that's a little, you know, I think you can be politically correct or incorrect, but in truth, if you want to be a great filmmaker and you really want to affect people, and this is not to say these things, it's to show them that there are truly things that could be called political the incorrect, which are absolutely biological essentials of the human condition. Well, there's a kind of way in the gender uh, politics of the film you worked on, the first Terminator, the woman, you know, you could have been a damsel in distress in the week. Well, she, she, she does it, uh, at, you know, in the film. And how many films since then have the uh, women, Mad Max, been more effective than the men? Are you and, talking Thunder Road, not Mad Max? <laughs> well, Mad Max Thunder Road, yes, but you know uh, the the latest Mad Max. So, in other words, um, you know, it's, it's a subject for a doctoral dissertation at some point, uh, I suppose. But yeah, on the one hand, I'm sure uh, I don't see as many. Usually, if I get to a situation where the plot builds to a damsel in distress, the damsel's going to do something about it. And that doesn't that didn't happen that much before, but it does happen more now. But she's still going to be beautiful. But but once again, it's it's as far as filmically, it's just as good for a damsel to get into distress and get herself out, or to be saved. It doesn't matter. It ha- it it's what fits the story, what fits the emotional connection better. So so I think with Argento, I think he's just an idiot for saying something out loud, i.e talking politically incorrect as opposed to giving the truth on film. Well, I think he enjoys being provocative. <laughs> yeah, there you go. And I can see us getting so much hate mail for this. <laughs> well, no, but the, the trick is that, no, we do care more, and it, it's a horrible thing, that we do care more about certain 
attractions that we have to things that we're not attracted to. If an, you know, if a very ugly person gets run over, you don't feel as strong as somebody that you care about or looks like you'd like to meet them gets run over. That's Unknown. nature. Yeah. And and to to actually call it politically correct or not is fine, but it still happens in the human psyche. It's still there. And obviously it would be great to train us to be different. And if you're a really good filmmaker or a good novelist or a good speaker, you can work towards moving that. Do you think a film like Suspiria could be made today or would... Uh, we'll find out, won't we? Actually, yes. We're, we're, <laughs> There's a sequel well, in the it's, works. It, it's not a sequel. It's, it's, a, it's remake. a remake. Yeah. It, it's a remake, yes. By somebody else. Not by Darden. And so, um, and will be be fascinating to see what changes they've made, either for marketing purposes or for political correctness uh, purposes, that or would both. Be, that would be interesting. Yes, I think there'll be all kinds of ways of sort of uh, like assessing that. It's sort of interesting. I'm just sort of curious. Uh, tonight we're showing a film that uh, I'm sort of uncomfortable with: the women. Uh, and now talk about politically incorrect. <laughs> yeah, and then I didn't see the remake, which here was terrible. Well, was the remake was terrible. terrible in and of terrible. itself, or was it simply terrible because the times have changed in terms of her attitude? Well, they they actually tried to do the things they they replaced wit with sex. Okay. <laughs> sex talk is not as good as wit. And uh, apparently, this, uh, I've seen the film about forty years ago. I don't remember. But I'm just looking forward to the dialogue. But yeah, there there's a kind of way. You know, thinking of you know what we're talking about in terms of damsel in distress. Would I care if the, one of the characters played by the great character actress Marjorie Maine? Do I care if she gets killed or Polite Goddard? I mean, what's, you know, that's it's not a part of part of the plot. And I think that's why these things are always worth discussing. Suspiria, independently of where it fits on the political um, correctness slide, is a very, very effective piece of filmmaking. Hmm. And uh, there are things it's not, but I do feel that at least in terms of when I saw the film in the late 1970s, it made me look at, uh, it was different enough from the standard thing I saw as horror films to make me take notice. And it still does. Whether it's influenced by um, opium or whether it's influenced by opera or, you know, all of that, it's just a very, very effective piece of filmmaking. But, and, and unique. I mean, it yes. is, it, uh, when it when it sprung itself on us, it was something no one had seen. Uh, he uh, the he it's filled with these little tricks, hidden hidden along the way. I mean, all of the the set design, the colors, in fact, even the writing on the walls are all. In fact, what there's Escher there. There's yeah um, yeah the, Escher. I was going to ask you about that. Like all those winding staircases. No, no, it's that, actually uh, there's a ser It's a an, an Escher set of. Uh, it's, I believe it's the it's a set of birds. The thing about Escher is that Escher is the optical illusion mm -hmm. that if that if you look at the dark part you see one thing if you look at the light part you see another. Mm. It's is it is it a vase or two faces type illusion? Yes, I, I and that's that. And so he there's I believe there's actually an Escher piece. There's a number of different artists who seem to have. But his influence the, the set is those winding staircases is in, not in Suspiria no, reminded me of him. Remi yeah, reminded maybe. I mean, although once again, if it was Escher, a staircase going up and a staircase going down would meet in the same place, yeah. whether you're going up well, or down. Well, I'm not saying literally, but yes. Well, no, I mean once again, Harry Potter did brilliantly with their their dormitory where oh, the yeah. stairs always ended up. You know, they were very Escher esque. Didn't uh, this? The exteriors were done in Munich or in Berlin. Mm -hmm. uh, but wasn't the weren't most of the interiors done in Italy? Yes, I, the, yeah, the interiors so. were done in Italy in, in two different studios, actually. Not in yeah. Cinecita, but in the other one. Yeah. Right. Well, that means there was probably more control, and he had he worked with the people who were the set designers. You know, there's probably you know clearly a very deliberate film. I still think you know forty years later uh, when we watched this the other night. The people who had never seen the film still responded. It's not as if, oh, that old thing. Uh, there's still a freshness about it. Well, I mean, let's put it this way. If you if you look and you, you go see uh, Phantom of the Opera, the silent movie, it's dated, but it's powerful and, and amazing, and you sit there totally. in, in awe of it. Totally, totally. And Suspiria is much the same way. It's not, 
you know, you're not, it's not as scary anymore. And Phantom of the Opera is no longer that scary to watch. But you sit no. there in awe of how it's been put together, the, the elements that, that, that affect you are atmospheric as well as being character. And I, and I, think, it sits, I, I think it sits comfortably that way, in that if you've seen it a few times, it's not a scary movie anymore. But it is something to marvel at how brilliantly put together it is. Yeah, and it's just too bad that Argento didn't have, uh, and never made attention to having a great central performer, actor. And he gets these washed up, you know, Valley and uh, what's her name, Joan Bennett, mm-hmm. who was kind of painful to look at because she was beautiful in the days when she was making films with Fritz Lang. She, she was beautiful she, in this uh, film. It was, I thought she it was, was Valley who looked old in that well, ger- German hefty. Yeah, Lita Valley looked a little older, but Joan I think she was also, she may have been built out a little bit more than she actually was because remember, was, yeah. she, she, when did she do Day for Night? Wasn't it? 73, that's earlier. Four years earlier, yeah. or two years earlier, and she was still, you know, so they must have built her out and made her look uncomfortably <laughs> unattractive for this mm. film. But um, some of the women who are in peril still are pretty attractive, and so uh, <laughs> on that. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to the first episode of The Real Window. I hope you enjoyed it. Keep watching this space and tune in for more.